Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm a very sleepy Nick Watson on Twitter <laughs> at underscore NJ Watson. Let's, uh, let's look alive, people. And today we are going to be talking about the art of the TV episode. From episodic to serialized TV shows, we'll take a look at what an episode means on both a narrative and creative level. I think I'm having an episode right now. <laughs> Nick, can you explain to us what an episode means? The dictionary definition of an episode is usually like a brief piece of action or story within a dramatic work. That is to say, it's defined by existing as a small piece of a whole. If it could exist without the rest of it, it wouldn't really be an episode. It would be a standalone piece of work, like a short film or a movie. Right. But TV is a very fluid medium, and every show really redefines what the episode means or what an episode means based on their narrative need. So, for example, you have the obvious temple example of the episodic or procedural series. So that would be, by and large, mostly self-contained stories just for that week with recurring characters and settings. So that means that usually you don't really need to have seen the previous episodes to appreciate or understand the episode that you're watching right now. And that's kind of opposed to a more serialized series, which is an unfolding of a continuous storyline involving the same group of characters in an ongoing narrative. And that usually does require context of previous episodes to fully appreciate that story. And then third, you have kind of this weird middle ground of anthology series. And those are completely self-contained and independent piece of storytelling, completely independent from the whole. And they're really just united usually by a common theme or idea that is tied to the concept of the show. So for example, you have Masters of Horror, where you had Masters of Horror directors and writers that were brought in to make single episodes just about horror stories. We have Twilight Zone or Black Mirror, which are more iconic kind of science fiction or supernatural shows. The big thing is with anthology series is that you won't see the same characters twice. You won't have recurring characters or settings, unlike both serialized series and procedural, i.e. episodic series. So production-wise, by and large, regardless of the content of a show, an episode, as defined under WGA or SAG or PGA, is still just a half-hour or one-hour piece of content. So in terms of shooting for broadcast, that's about eight days of shooting for drama or five or six days for a comedy. And for looking at the season of episodes, then that usually for cable would mean a 10 to 13 episode season, while for broadcast network is more of the traditional 22 episodes a season. And that goes for both drama and comedies. In our first section, we're going to talk about an episode as a standalone entity, something that's self-contained and like we said, episodic. Traditionally, if you look at dramas, you have procedural shows, which are more like your standalone mystery or case of the week, like a cop show, medical show, or legal show. And those usually pertain to the intricacies of a workplace. And for comedy, you're looking a lot at multicam sitcoms with hard resets on the characters or situations, so nothing really carries over from week to week. And that's true for some single cams and animated shows as well. Yes, yeah, so and now that we've looked at kind of like the one-on-one of what those are, Nick, can you tell me what is the best piece of standalone storytelling or TV storytelling that you've seen? ever? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say, I mean, I'm always going to jump back to The Simpsons for comedy, and probably my favorite episode of that is 22 short films about Springfield, which is 
their homage to kind of pop fiction. It's a series of very short stories about different members of Springfield and how they all kind of intersect in that. And I just thought that that was a really fun and, and you know, brilliant kind of <laughs> take on that. But for drama, I'm a big fan of Stargate. And so Stargate SG-1 Window of Opportunity, where they're stuck in like the Groundhog Day time loop. Jack O'Neill's hitting golf balls through the Stargate, all that kind of great stuff, I think was a, a really clever standalone episode as well. And how like every loop begins with him eating Fruit Loops. <laughs> yes, very clever. How about you? What do you, what's your kind of like uh, standalone stuff? Well, I mean, uh, since you're talking about The Simpsons, I'll be talking about the other Mac Rating show that I really enjoy, uh, Futurama. And the one Futurama episode that really sticks out to me as a great like self-contained episode is the episode called Farnsworth Paradox, not Paradox, Paradox. <laughs> that is about the multitude of alternate universes that are in the Futurama universe, pun intended. And basically what happens is you have the professor creates a box containing our universe, but then this box gets lost in another box with another universe and so the cast need to track down the box amongst so many boxes it's so confusing mm-hmm. hence the name paradox not paradox now on the drama side there's a show that i really really love called buffy the vampire slayer never heard of it never heard of it that did a lot of those very novel self-contained episodes and one of those is the show or rather episode called hush and the novelty about hush was that for the vast majority of the episode there was no dialogue which for a very quick-paced, witty show like Buffy was kind of a unique experience. So knowing our favorite standalone episode of TV, why do you think we picked those and not other ones? It's kind of funny because in a way, they're almost departures from the norm. It's something kind of out of the ordinary for what the show usually is. But the trick to that is it's still grounded in those familiar characters. We're using the situation and the setting that we all know, but just in a new way that we didn't really expect. We're so used to them doing the normal way that this comes along. And we're like, wow, this is great. Yeah, because I feel like in both, for example, Stargate, you do have this weird gate malfunction that creates this loop. And on Buffy, you have the gentlemen, which are the freak of the week. And so you still have this recurring familiarity with this very particular difference. It's almost like a out. temporary shift in the rules of the world just for one right. episode. Which is kind of funny because I think that there's some irony in that if you were to show someone who's never seen either Buffy or Stargate both of those episodes, they probably would not appreciate it as much as you did. You know, if you show Hush to someone who's never seen Buffy, they're like, where's the dialogue? I'm just bored right here. And if you show Window Opportunity to someone who's never seen Stargate, they may laugh at Jack O'Neill playing golf but it'll be a very superficial way of looking at the episode. Yeah, they're going to be like, why aren't they going on a planet? Like, why? What's <laughs> that the is deal? boring. <laughs> I thought this is all about exploration. So creatively, from our kind of writer's perspective, there are a lot of limitations to writing episodically. But I do think in some ways people have this prejudice against standalone or episodic formats. It's kind of strange. They're seen as less artistic or less skill intensive, maybe, than writing something that's serialized. I think a lot of people envision those episodic television shows as very repetitive. It's like if you've seen one CSI, you've seen all of them. And although on some level it may be true for some episodic TV shows, I do think that just because you have a set formula doesn't mean you can't be original. There's a common saying in art and especially in film medium where the more restrictions you have, the more creative freedom you actually have, right? If you just have a $5 budget, then that means you're not under pressure of a production company, for example, for mm-hmm. uh, your short film. It's like and- the classic bottle 
bottle episode idea, right? Exactly. I think the same is true as you just brought up with either bottle episode or like most TV shows like your classic procedural because you have either that five act box where you need to figure out your way out of it or you also have that 20 plus episode order. So that would mean that you have maybe at least five probably episodes where you can kind of experiment and do whatever you want. I think maybe part of this kind of prejudice against it is that it's seen to appeal to a much broader audience or a lower common denominator. There's not as much of an investment in your time and, and your interest beyond that one hour or that 30 minutes as opposed to those premium AAA cable drama shows that require much more kind of intellectual investment. In right. It. I would argue that despite the episodic nature of some procedurals, they are able to tackle more relevant issues potentially than some serialized shows like Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is very intellectual and very cerebral at times mm -hmm. because it's about power or house of cards even though it's entertaining it, it still tackles like macro issues about our life through the prism of a genre but you do have the same thing that happens on a micro scale in more procedural shows where in my mind the fact that you do have this episodic reset and this episodic you know self-contained narrative allows you to tell stories about topics that are immediate to our lives. So the two examples that come to mind for me are Law and Order, SVU, and The Good Wife. And that is because both of the shows use their episodes to tell stories about real life news events. There's an upcoming SVU episode about Trump, I believe. And you won't find the same story in like a Daredevil episode. If they do create a season around a Trump villain, then that will seem very tacked on because that's not really what Daredevil is about. But The Good Wife or Law and Order or any of those shows are almost like chameleons where they can merge those real life issues, say something really interesting through the prism of their own narrative. Yeah, I mean, there's such a big lead up time to having to plot these long season arcs and show arcs that you can't really go in and last minute insert something that happened in the news, where it's a more structured, broken down thing for those episodic ones. Same with South Park on the comedy side. Uh, those guys are brilliant because they literally have like a one week turnaround from writing the episode through to animating it and putting it to air. There's a brilliant documentary called Seven Days to Air that goes through that whole process. And it means that they are able to just like have cutting edge satire of whatever happened that week, which is almost impossible in any other animation because the lead time for those episodes is like three months plus. Yeah, I think that that's the big benefit is that you have so many episodes to produce that you do have the freedom to do something unique in one of those chapters. You know, it's not like a novel where you're bound by the limitations of that narrative. You can jump around and do novel things. So, for example, you can have a cool Buffy episode like the one where they explore the nightmares of each of the characters. And it's like, hey, let's try to tell each character's dream within an act. Act one is going to be Buffy. Act two is going to be Xander and so on. On. And then within those acts, we're going to be exploring the symbolic representation of what they've been through in the season. And then the same can be said about CSI that did a whole episode directed by Quentin Tarantino. I definitely think that there are some major benefits to having this kind of one and done entertainment. Often I see these shows as the TV equivalent of a popcorn movie. It's like a fun distraction for a little bit, but you're not necessarily going to have to watch the entire rest of the series, especially if you're, you're not really interested in making that huge investment, like I was saying, of your time. This comes up a lot for me when I'm watching the show with my girlfriend or a friend or something like that. If you start a show together, then every time you watch an episode, you have to go back and be with that person when you watch it. Otherwise, you get out of order and you can't catch up and you can't just watch it at home. Whereas if you were just to switch on something that's like very episodic and 
and standalone, you can jump in wherever and you can both enjoy it in the same way. I just have a teddy bear, so I don't have to wait around to watch uh, <laughs> Carnival. Now, on top of the creative aspect, there's obviously the business side of things because this is show business, not show whatever that one thing I said in the last episode was. From a business standpoint, traditionally procedurals and multicam sitcoms being self-contained actually are the most popular. They have the highest ratings consistently on those networks versus you can't really just jump in easily to a serialized show. Binging series in this kind of novelistic way has its perks for subscription models and things like that. But internationally, particularly, the most successful shows are episodic and procedural. And even creatively, I mean, if you look at the reception of those uh, of those procedural shows in international TV festivals, they are more successful than your Breaking Bad or your Mad Men. And there's a festival called the Monte Carlo TV Festival that's been in existence since the 60s. And it's halfway between a creative festival as well as a shop for international outlets. And they have awards that they give out where they award, you know, the best TV series and so on. And if you look at past winners, the best international TV series has often been those procedurals like House MD. And House MD does not necessarily compare it to a Mad Men, and yet they're still winning those prizes. And the same goes for MIP TV that is also the go-to place. It's kind of like the can of TV where you have those international outlets buying national or regional programming to either adapt or, or just straight up buy for their own error. Yeah, we see it a lot in terms of buying an international format and then adapting it and kind of recreating that show, like uh, Sherlock or Wilfred or... You have like unsuccessful versions like Coupling where you have this <laughs> successful British show that was trying to be adapted to American Air or uh, the IT crowd. I think they yeah, did the that office. with... Most of them don't work, but some of them do. Although those are like comedy and you do have the other flip side where you have your Law & Order, which is a very successful American procedural that is being bought in both France and the UK for local adaptations. Mm -hmm. So you have Law and Order, I think, London or UK with Jamie Bamber from Ballastar Galactica in the lead, or you have the French version of Law and Order that is strictly about Paris. Say it in um, French. What is it? What's the name in French? Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> So moving on to this idea of serialization in TV, we're really going to take a look at what does an episode mean in this age of Netflix and serialized shows. But before we really delve into that, we want to take a look at the history of serialization in television. Right. I mean, for the longest time, you had very episodic television shows that tell self-contained stories for various reasons. But in the late 90s, you had a slight shift where you had some procedurals like Hell Street Blues that offered a form of connective tissue throughout the episodes to give a sense of depth in that world. Although they were not full-blown serialized narrative by any means, they'll still offer this continuity throughout the episodes. Uh, but the first non-soap drama to really offer a strong serialized narrative have always been genre shows like X-Files or even Babylon 5 or Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And I think that is in part because historically, genre fans are more used to long stretches of story over long periods of time. So if you look at either book series like Philip K. Dick novels or comic books, you do have to wait multiple weeks, months, years to fully look at the big picture. At that point, that was still limited to subplots and not necessarily driving that arc of the entire show. And in my mind, the big turning point towards serialized shows were the late 90s slash early 2000s with broadcast shows, actually, like 24, Elias, and Lost, where the narrative push was truly serialized and not just your case of the week. But what about comedy, Nick? 
on the comedy side, and firstly, I'm not an expert in any of this, so apologies if I get anything wrong, but really I think comedy found its beginnings in variety shows, and there's really early multicam sitcoms that were actually broadcast live, and for a while they weren't even taping them, they were just going on screen and kind of disappearing, and I think Lucille Ball was one of the first people who came up with the idea of physically taping her shows and being able to have reruns and things like that. But necessarily, everything was kind of standalone, because there was no real way to go back and catch up on previous episodes. There was also this strong tradition from radio plays that people would tune into every week from which these TV comedy formats really evolved. So this is back when like NBC and CBS were radio broadcasters. I think the very first radio comedy in the US was called The Cuckoo Hour by a guy called Raymond Knight in 1929 on NBC. And then later on, you had people like Jack Bennett and Bob Hope coming along through that tradition and made their way into TV. But I think comedy radio plays tended more towards sketches and self-contained things, unlike these serialized soap radio dramas. So again, even back in those days, there was that difference in format. But like Alex said, with drama, comedy kind of underwent this slow process from fully episodic, hard reset multicam, something like I Love Lucy in the late 50s, to shows more like MASH in 72 that were mostly episodic, but still had this kind of serialized connective tissue where characters could have an ongoing storyline and an arc where the events would actually have consequences outside of just that episode. For anyone who's seen MASH, it culminates in that classic finale with Hawkeye and the chicken on the bus, which you'll know what I mean if you've seen it. And then all that comes around to the dawn of comedy that was almost fully driven by an ongoing story. So maybe HBO was something like Sex and the City in 98. There's that whole romantic arc between Carrie and Mr. Big. And I would say one of the clearest examples of something relying purely on Clotten's story being serialized in a comedy would be Arrested Development on Fox in 03. This wasn't a hard reset every single week. It's really following the story of Michael Booth trying to hold everything together in his family and George Booth's incarceration and all that kind of thing. There was no way you could just kind of hit the reset button next week and be like, what are the shenanigans going to get into this time? It really followed a true arc. And then these days, you have streaming services like Amazon that want all of their comedies to be fully serialized, like Transparent, again, with Jeffrey Tambor. Maybe he has something to do with <laughs> yeah, he changes the landscape every time he comes <laughs> on screen. Yeah, it's funny because if you look at HBO shows, you still had, even in the early 90s, comedies that were very different from what was on air at the time. You know, you have Dream On that came in the early 90s by the same people who did Friends. And that was in 1990 was Dream On and Friends was 1994, I believe. And so I think you do have the same dichotomy, even though you had the same people doing both shows, you can look at the distinction between what a Dream On episode looks like and what a Friends episode looks like. And even Friends, I think, Nick, you mentioned outside of this podcast that there were some small storylines that still kept on. Yeah, totally. Um, Especially the relationships like Ross and Rachel getting married and Chandler and Monica going on and off again, all that kind of thing. There was definitely more of a serialization to that than most multicam sitcoms. Right. To me, like that, that's the equivalent of like the X-Files where you do have those either top episodes at the season or bottom episodes at the end of the season or middle episodes mm-hmm. that are almost mythology episodes. And then the rest of them are going to be your standalone content and there's been a switch where now the pendulum has completely shifted to CLI shows and I do think in this day and age, we got to ask ourselves as TV writer, like what defines an episode in the age of serialized storytelling? And in my mind, the big thing about serialized TV shows is that there's no boundary between one episode and the next. You know, it's like a novel that has a 10 hour or 12 hour, 13 hour span. And the only pause is between chapters in a book. And in my mind, there's a tipping point that happened where the familiarity and the narrative and the continuity in every episode and in the season 
took over the story itself instead of just being in the background and being kind of like a gimmick in the background. It's actually intrinsic to the narrative and the show itself. Now, with that said, given this shift to extremely serialized storytelling and this loss of what a standalone episode means, do you have any particular favorite serialized episode? I think it's a much harder one to kind of pin down because A, you need to understand the context of the thing to understand why it's a good episode, but also it is harder to sit there and think about oh yeah the one where this happens or whatever as opposed to the more episodic ones but if i had to really search for it sons of anarchy was a favorite show of mine for a while and in spoiler alert yeah spoilers here if you haven't seen it this is i think was in the last season or maybe the the finale of the second last season but something very bad happens to a prominent character who's been there since season one all along and the audience's hopes are kind of riding on this person making it okay and everything turning out well and we're like yes finally it's going to happen you know everything just happened to a line at this point where we're thinking yes it's finally all good and then there's this dramatic irony this tragic misunderstanding that leads to this character dying all right uh, it involves a fork <laughs> it's very graphic spoiler a fork um, what? but it really sets off a huge chain reaction that ruins the entire equilibrium of the world again right when we thought we were okay that's funny that you bring up ruining the equilibrium because my version of that for the drama side is the mid-season episode of alias and specifically the second season, this episode called Phase One that aired during the Super Bowl. And you would think that traditionally during a Super Bowl, you would want to air the most generic traditional episode of a TV show to be like, hey, guys, this is what a generic episode of this show looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, tune in next week. But Alias did the polar opposite of that. <laughs> and not only did they kill a major character in that episode, but they completely upended the status quo of the show. And the basic concept of Alias is that you have Jennifer Garner's character who thinks she's working for the CIA, but is actually working for this evil CIA called SD6. And they're the main villains of the show, and she becomes a double agent for the CIA going undercover in SD6. And this mid-season episode of television completely changed the concept of the show because ST6 basically blew up in that episode. And then you do wonder, like, what is the show going to look like now that the main villain has been defeated in the middle of the season, in the second season of this broadcast show? And I definitely remember vividly watching this episode live because it was like, okay, this I've never seen a show upend its own formula in the middle of a season in a Super Bowl episode. I thought that was really ballsy of them. So flipping it over to the comedy side, I think I've mentioned this episode at least three times over the course of this podcast by now, but in You're the Worst, season two, there's a scene where Jimmy chooses to be with Gretchen and help her through her depression instead of running off with another girl. And the reason that sticks out in my mind, apart from the raw emotionality of it, bringing tears to your eyes, that it shows character growth. Jimmy is finally acting in a way that is not selfish. It shows that he does really care about her. So it kind of crystallizes this relationship for them too. And it's also a payoff of a story arc that's being set up throughout the whole season. I think that these moments are so memorable and effective because they pay off things that have been set up over a very long time. It's almost a reward to the viewer for came out for so long. You brought up Arrested Development earlier. I think one of the most iconic serialized episode of Arrested Development was the series finale, or rather the season three finale, which at the time was the series finale of Arrested Development, Development Arrested, where you have Michael relieved of all the charges against his dad dropped and shocked to learn who holds the real power in the family. Spoiler alert, it is not Michael Bluth. And that was, again, a really interesting dichotomy to 
the status quo of the show where you had this established setting of Michael Bluth helping his dad and so on. And then the finale kind of like upended the whole show. And that was because you had years of emotional investment in it. Yeah, I do think these moments are so memorable and effective because they either pay off things that have been set up over a very long period. So it's it's like a reward to the viewer for sticking around for so long. Or in Sons of Anarchy or Alias, it kind of almost eliminates all hope of a certain dramatic question or conflict. Or will they, weren't they? Or how will this finally end up? That's been teased out over many seasons and disrupts the equilibrium like we were talking about. That ties back to the idea of an episode, right? It's a clear indication that this is something that's part of the whole. It has no dramatic or really narrative value outside of the context or the emotional investment that you've had in the past. Now, let me ask you this, Nick. We did bring up the episodes that were most memorable. Why do you think those are more memorable than others in those serialized shows? I guess it's almost like a shock to the system. Like we're saying, it's not so much that you enjoy the episode and you leave laughing and like, man, I had such a good time watching that. It's more that it does something huge and unexpected, kills a favorite character or blows up the setting, you know, whatever it happens to be. You're dramatically engaged and you remember it, even if you're not necessarily walking out of it thinking like, I had so much fun, you know. So, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of great reasons to invest in a serialized show, whether you're a writer or a viewer, but what are some of the downsides of this format? The downside, I think, in very serialized shows is you'll have this tendency of binge-watching it. And in my mind, if you binge-watch a show that is hyper-serialized, like a Breaking Bad or BSD, you won't really fully appreciate the nuances of that show or even the episodes. And that is because part of the mystery and the enjoyment in that mystery is having to reflect and ponder on the questions being asked and the mythology at the center of that show. So an obvious example for Battlestar Galactica is who is a Cylon and what are the rules to being a Cylon and not being a Cylon? And if you just binge watch five seasons, you won't really have the time to reflect. I agree. I think there's something to be said for that kind of collective experience of pondering what will happen next week and reflecting on this week's episode past, like we still see in Game of Thrones or Walking Dead, this like event programming, as opposed to just having binge 10 hours of content to even have a conversation with someone about a show, let alone the high propensity for spoilers that are floating around on the internet. Is there really a rule of when can or cannot we talk about this Daredevil whole season that just aired? There's no clear distinction. And I think that is where my passion at TV originated from was through those medium of conversations and those weekly discussions, whether it was like, you know, 24 or Lost, where we would wonder online, what's in the hatch between the first and the second season of the show? It's one long hiatus where all you have is questions and you have this message board and you got to talk with these people. And you don't have that level of interactivity and discussion when you're just marathoning Breaking Bad for five seasons. You missed out on that conversation. And that is also why, in my mind, when you binge watch these hyper-serialized shows, you lose that sense of individuality and reflection. You know, you're enjoying the medium passively as it washes over you instead of actively thinking about what you're watching and the content between each episode. When you're pressing play between episode three and four, you're not thinking about episode three, you're just like continuing washing it down. You said you lose that sense of reflection. I think you'll also lose a sense of community almost that you're, right. you're all together in this. You're lost fans. You're sitting there, you're watching, you're speculating, you're on internet forums and that kind of thing. Like you said, it doesn't really happen anymore when you binge watched a whole season of Stranger Things. You're like, hey, did you see that show? Like, yep, it was good. It was like, it's, it's very binary, right? It's yeah. like, oh, have you seen the latest uh, Stranger Things? It's either yes or no. Yeah, and have all the answers. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like, if yes, then we can have a conversation about mm. the end. Mm. And if it's no, then we probably cannot talk about it. It's like, oh, I've seen like three episodes of Stranger Things. I have no idea what that third episode of Stranger Things is because mm -hmm. it's kind of like a homogenous kind of like hole yeah. that is hard to, to see the beginning and the end. And even when you have a watch party of like, 
Game of Thrones or Jessica Jones, where, okay, let's all watch together six episodes of Jessica Jones. Okay, so you're going to do that, but then there's no conversation, right? The watch parties I've been to, we don't really pause the episode and have a half-hour conversation. It's not like a book club. You just watch them, and then either you like him or you don't like him, but this community and this discussion doesn't happen between the episodes. It's just mm-hmm. at the very end. And the last downside, I feel like, maybe it's an upside, but in my mind, it's a downside, is you do lose the critical aspect of watching a show. And by that, I mean that if you watch continuously five seasons of a show or six seasons, you're not going to find the faults, and you're not going to understand why people don't like it as much. So someone who marathons all of Lost today will probably have a better experience, including the later season, better experience overall than someone who watched it weekly since season one because they won't have probably the same disappointment that some questions were unresolved. And to me, it's almost more intimidating in a way. It's such a huge thing to have to commit to watching 10 hours worth of content or whatever. Like I would maybe happily have sat there and watched one episode a week of all these shows. But if I know that I have to go and get through five seasons of Mad Men or whatever, it's like, God, I can't even think about that, like the level of (laughs) commitment that requires. Yeah, I mean, it's like the Americans. I've seen one season of the Americans. It's this very heavy show. And people are like, this is amazing. Best on TV. And I'm 100% certain that they're correct. And yet I'm having a really hard time sitting down and watching this 13 hour movie. And it's kind of funny because I think the same thing happens with some critics where I don't know if you heard about this, Nick, but there's this show called Goliath on Amazon with Billy Bob Thornton. And the New York Times recently gave a very negative review of the show. But turns out they watched the two episodes they got to review out of order. So they're (laughs) very confused about what's happening here. Why did we get a negative review on my show? Oh, wait, it's because they watched the episode out of order. That reminds me of when I got the Harry Potter books as a kid and my aunt bought me the third book first. (laughs) And I read read it and I'm like, all right, I guess I get it by the end of this. But man, they just really threw you in the middle there. Then I read the first one. I'm like, wow, this is like reading a prequel. (laughs) (laughs) Previously on Harry Potter. Harry Potter origin stories. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're going to make that at some point, right? Isn't that the movie? It's basically like like Wizarding World Origins, because it's like a 1930s like so. American version of it. Now, beyond the viewer experience, what about the creative and the writing angle of, of writing serialized TV shows? As a writer, if you want to be in a room or create your own show in a highly serialized fashion, you're going to spend a lot of time mapping out very complex arcs for characters and for story, even for multiple seasons across an entire show, if you are planning to go that long, or you know you're going to go that long. So then when things suddenly change in production, as they do all the time, it's a huge domino effect that could cause the room to have to rewrite multiple episodes or outlines and change the direction of the series sometimes. This can be mitigated whether it's streaming like Netflix or Amazon, you're doing them all at once before they even get released. So you have the time to go back and play with those. But if you're doing something on network or cable and it's coming out week by week, then you've got all this whole thing where people are responding to public feedback, to ratings, to network pressure, and that changes things. And that's going to, again, domino all the way through your arcs. Oh, for sure. And I think now there's a movement to do shows in a vacuum. And by that, I mean, you do have this model now where, for example, AMC ordered this show to 10 episodes, two seasons of five episodes each. And they're writing all episodes before even shooting one frame. And so now they're back in the second season of this unnamed AMC show that my friend is working on. The second season is being written right now without the first frame of the pilot episode being shot. And both seasons are going to be released probably around like 2017, if not 2018. So that's a lot of waiting 
for potentially a bad show or, yeah. a, or a really good do show. Do you think that's a defensive move so that they can just go back and change words on a page instead of having to do reshoots and edits and things like that? Or Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. There's definitely the creative aspect of let's plan it out till the end before we even shoot one frame. But I think it's also the international model of the network wants creative control, right? They want to know this product is good. And in the age of serialized shows, they want to look at the finished product. And the finished product now in 2016 is not one episode. The finished product is the series finale of the show. And what does that look like on a narrative level? And you need a room of writers to break that. And maybe it's going to be a mini room that's going to kind of like brainstorm six episodes. And once you get down to the outlining process, they may not look the same, but it gives more confidence towards the network or to the production company that they can invest money in shooting this. I feel like it also kind of avoids the lost or the heroes syndrome where people only ever plan for one season. The network's like, we love it. Give us more. And they're like, oh boy, what do we do now? (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. I mean, we brought up, I think a few episodes ago, uh, Greg Nations, who was both a story editor and the keeper of the Bible and lost. And you do have to juggle so many balls. I mean, Game of Thrones is the same where you have literally encyclopedia being made about the books just to follow the hundreds of characters. I think every time I watch Game of Thrones, I need to open the book and just pause every frame and be like, oh wait, who's this character again? Let me look in the dictionary of the character. Yeah, but like you're saying, this is definitely getting reflected on the business side of things. So there are these things called network needs documents, which are confidential. Shh. So it's basically what networks are looking for. And so agencies have this idea of what they should be pitching to them from their writers and and going in for projects. So, for example, Amazon, on the comedy side, they only want serialized comedy. They're not interested in episodic stuff. They don't want wacky, hard reset sitcoms because of their streaming model. Same with AMC. They only want serialized drama because they want people to buy cable subscriptions to keep tracking that story along as they go. They don't really want a procedural like a CSI on there because they don't want people to be able to come in and out at will. They want them to buy their subscription and stick around the whole time. A lot of this is influenced by their profit models, how it is that they make money. So as opposed to networks who want more of this episodic stuff because their ratings model encourages as many people as possible to tune in and tune out and just drop in whenever they feel like it. But Netflix actually has tools for measuring how many episodes it takes to get someone hooked on one of their shows. For example, Bloodline, I think they figured out it was somewhere between four and five episodes before they would then watch through to the rest of the series. So they are following that all the way through back to the feedback they're giving to writers and stuff and like yes you can have this slow pace this long lead up as long as you hook them at a certain point and they stay with us it's funny to look also at the network model where in the mid-2000s they took a step forward to do more serialized shows and then they took a huge step back and now they're slowly moving forward in this limited series space and that was because right after the success of Lost and 24, they wanted those hyper-serialized shows. And if you look again back in the mid-2000s and the late-2000s, you had shows like Jericho, Vanish, Kidnap, The Nine, Drive, The Event, V, Flash Forward. You can uh, probably do a song where you just list all <laughs> the cancel shows. And those were all hyper-serialized, high-concept, high-cost shows that had very low ratings and very quick cancellation. In part, that is because they were not going to be successful in reruns. But now, there's less concern of that because the name of the game is who controls the IP and the second and third window is not the same as it used to be. And the big thing is you got to look at where the people are making their money from. As Nick brought up for cable, it's the subscription model. They want to keep you subscribed over many months. 
for network, originally it is advertising, right? It is the ad breaks, the cliffhangers, as we brought up. And now, because the studios and the networks are all merging together, ABC wants shows from ABC Studios now. And Warner Brothers, CW wants shows from Warner Brothers and so on. And so that means the money is not necessarily 100% coming from advertising. It's going to be coming from the second window in the over-the-top platforms like Netflix and so on. Exactly. I mean, traditionally, networks only really cared about the live ratings. And that was very much tied to how much money they're getting from advertising. And if you didn't get those big numbers tracking on from the first few episodes from the premiere through the next one, if it kept dropping off, it was very, very rare for those numbers to just shoot back up again. It just didn't happen. And they knew they weren't going to be getting enough money to incentivize the advertisers and the show gets canceled. It's just a lost cause for them. Rating wise, now you have, I think, Live Plus 7, if not Live Plus 15 for networks. And Netflix doesn't even release numbers. So it's hard to gauge what that rating means in the age of VOD, in the age of OTT, in the age of all these three syllable uh, <laughs> Content uh, distributors. The other thing is, I feel like you can only really take on so many highly serialized shows at once. It's it's a lot to commit to. Therefore, an oversaturation means there's less room for everyone to really kind of latch onto an audience. It's this. I don't want to have 12 shows that are all highly serialized and I need to binge all of them to understand them. I'd like to have a little bit of levity here and there, you know? Yeah, I mean, every time I watch Daredevil, I have a notebook at hand where I take notes, kind of like when I was in college, just to understand what's going on. <laughs> Working out the formulas. And, yeah. Know, you know, how does this tie into Luke Cage? And, yeah. <laughs> We've spoken about traditionally highly serialized things and highly episodic things, but what does an episode look like these days? You've had for the longest time the spectrum of, on one end, these very episodic standalone procedural shows for drama, and then on the other, you have these hyper-serialized stories that have this novel approach to them. And they were mutually exclusive. You know, people were like, okay, how can I tell this standalone episode, but without a, a serialized narrative? And vice versa, it's like, if you want to tell this novel story, you're not going to be tackling case of the weeks, cases of the week, I should say. And now I think we've entered this era where a lot of writers are recognizing that an episode can be an art form in of itself while still being ingrained in a greater narrative and a greater storytelling. And in my mind, the best recent example is the show called The Leftovers on HBO. Sure about old food from the night before, right? It's like <laughs> it's, it's all about med- my- it's, it's a medical case of the week where someone's eating bad leftovers <laughs> and they get taken in and they're like, "What did you have?" Hold up, I've got NBC on the phone. I think they want to <laughs> buy five season order of that. Think Wolves, The Leftovers. <laughs> the true leftovers on HBO is the show about people disappearing, not food disappearing, people mm-hmm. disappearing, kind of like a rapture-like event. And the first season was very much serialized with an ongoing ensemble cast that was predominantly following this one family with the patriarch being played by Justin Theroux. And in this 10, I think it was 10 episodes, maybe it was 12, but whatever. In this one season, they had two standout episodes that were 100% focused, almost like short films, on just two characters each. And these two were the most critically acclaimed episode of the entire season because they were so different and they were so unique. And yet they told these very compelling stories in this greater whole. And when season two came around, the writers took note of that criticism or positive reinforcement and actually made the entire second season basically a series of those episodes. Were they characters that were part of the main ensemble or were they newer characters? They, so it was half and half where right. they brought in a new family to focus on the second season, but they still dealt with the ramifications of the first season. I think it took at least 
two or three episodes to get back to that Justin Theroux character to give you an idea. But these episodes were kind of like a day in the life of X character and they were complete mini stories within the one hour. But nonetheless, they still fit within the frame of this hyper serialized season with an ongoing mystery. Each episode, although still focused on this one character, was still revealing more about that ongoing arc and that ongoing mystery. So when you tell me, for example, oh, I stopped watching The Leftovers on episode six and I'm like, oh, what happened briefly in that episode? You're like, oh, it's the episode about this guy. And I'll know exactly which episode you're talking about. So I'll be able to not spoil you by the end of the season, but I can still talk to you about this very specific episode. Whereas if you tell me, oh, I stopped Jessica Jones around episode six, I probably have no idea what that means. Yeah, it's funny the way that you can describe a particular episode is like, do you need to talk about everything that has happened up to that? It's like, oh, it's the point where after this guy dies, this person does that, then maybe it's a very highly serialized thing. If you can be like, oh, it's the one with the, and you say some memorable thing from the object, it's the one with the red car or whatever. You're like, oh, yeah, I know that one, you know, maybe it's more episodic. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's also this idea, as you brought up, the mental overload of all these stories. And if you can't pinpoint the part of the season you're at, then you're not going to be able to have those discussions with people. And Stranger Things, I think, is the same thing where I'm on the episode where the mom talks to her son through Christmas lights. But I don't even know what episode that was on because I've been to watch the whole season. Is that episode three? Is that episode five? I have no idea what the the climax of that scene was. So we've looked mostly at American shows and with a very definite number of episodes and arcs. What do you think is the international landscape of shows and the concept of an episode overseas? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different model. And I think that the epitome of it is this kind of like British model. They're like six episode seasons, but they're not miniseries. They're still TV seasons. You have these small groups of writers or even a single writer doing a whole season worth of stuff. They're writing all the scripts like Charlie Brooker in, in Black Mirror. Although this season of Black Mirror on Netflix funnily enough, is a different format because now that we're on the American model, I don't think he could write all six, 12 episodes. So I think they're doing some freelance episodes with Rashida Jones. Rashida Jones. Jones. Sure. Although I, yeah. honestly, I didn't think that that was the best episode. Yeah, well, I mean, so. uh, this is like a different conversation, but I feel like at some point this goes into like fan fiction slash spec script territory mm-hmm. because it's an anthology series and it's these people completely uninvolved with the OG Black Mirror writing those spec scripts in my mind. And it does bleed over into the US kind of thing as well because you have guys like Noah Hawley with Fogger, Nick Pizzolatto with True Detective, even Bo Willman with House of Cards. They may have a small room of writers who help them break story and, and do all that kind of thing, but they're still very much writing all the episodes. So having this smaller scale, this shorter order of episodes and a longer production schedule, particularly the British models, is six episodes, it allows for this kind of unprecedented oversight while keeping the overheads down a little, I guess. Um, <laughs> which is, you know, yeah. as Chris Corbett was saying the other week in Australia, is something they're kind of aspiring to. They're making a compromise towards this more expensive American showrunner writer's room model while keeping it really kind of achievable for a smaller industry. Yeah, I mean, it's this weird middle territory between a series and a limited series but in my mind a limited series is just a mini series if you look at Ben and Brothers it was this epic 10 episode show that was very self-contained and then 10 years later you had the Pacific but I guarantee if HBO were to make both of those mini series today they'd be like World War II Banner Brothers, and that'd be the brand, like Tom Hanks's World War II yeah. miniseries, Banner Brothers. And then the Pacific would not be called the Pacific. It'd be called Tom Hanks's World War II, the Pacific. Yeah, in yeah. the same way that American Crime Story or American Horror Story is branded to each season, even though the O.J. Simpson trial is going to be vastly different narratively from the Katrina season they're going to be making in the second season. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, the idea of a miniseries or a limited series is just that you have a very clear ending in mind, unlike a TV series that could theoretically run forever. 
whatever, which is obviously what the network wants it to. A miniseries, limited series, is essentially just a more sprawling version of a movie, a short novel with clear chapters in it. At what point does a show stop being a show and become a series of TV movies? Because you have something like Sherlock, which is, if you look at the third season, I think the third season was three episodes of 90 minutes. Isn't that just three movies at this point? It's an excellent question that I feel has to remain rhetorical because none of us have the answers. <laughs> what is what is TV? But people are really blurring <laughs> the lines of these formats a lot. And yeah, why is why aren't they just considered TV movies? I don't, I don't get that either. So. It's funny because in, in France, you do have those shows that in my mind are just a series of TV movies because they create four 90-minute production per year if not every other year so you do end up kind of with this like sherlock format mm. and they're considered a tv show because you do have these recurring characters and so on but they're still self-contained within those tv movies maybe um, it's the fact that tv movie has like a pejorative feel to it people are like tv movie what like a hallmark thing and it's associated with this lower class or prestige and now you have those hbo tv movies that are now like i don't even know the term it's gonna be like prestige tv movie or some well, term but like I mean, that's what I want to kind of talk about next is the fact that do you think there's any correlation between how episodic or how serialized something is with its critical reception or prestige? On some level, maybe. I mean, I think just with the fact that you are more emotionally invested and you have kind of this sunk cost fallacy going on where you watch 13 episodes of a serialized show, I think by default, you're probably going to be more invested in it and are going to consider it better than something like CSI or Flash. That could be a bad judgment in my mind because even if it's something super slow paced, like Bloodlines, where nothing really happens for a season, <laughs> you're still going to be like, this is amazing. Look at the shots of water going on for 20 minutes it's truly artistic but then you also have the flash where after one season spoiler alert everybody knows who the flash is and these like narrative leaps where you have a uh, huge resolutions of character and arc and narrative within 20 episodes i think is more rewarding arguably than uh, just a shot of water going on for uh, 10 episodes that's interesting. I find this with, yeah, I find this with indie movies as well. It's like the more you create these things that are very open to interpretation and even vague and uncertain, and you allow the audience to just create their own meaning from that, people tend to just be like, oh, this must be brilliant art. <laughs> like, you know? Oh, abstract, right? Abstract <laughs> art, or it's like, yeah, it's just a blue painting. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. Like, you know, like, <laughs> as opposed to something like The Flash that has to really force feed you the story in a short amount of time. It's like, here is the meaning of everything. You need to understand it to understand the plot. Then it's just like, here's some like low key character reflection and you're like oh wow that's artsy that again ties to the whole cerebral overload of i don't want to sit through a 30 minute shot of someone thinking mm -hmm. i've got better things to do <laughs> You know, I'll just think in my bedroom for 30 minutes. I think it'll be more rewarding. Speaking of that, there is this notion recently of this thing called midbrow television, uh, which is somewhere apparently between prestige cable HBO drama and this soapy lowest common denominator TV, like I don't know, CBS or something. Yeah, where does the unibrow fit in? <laughs> <laughs> so I think the CW has been mentioned as a proponent of this midbrow TV as well, that it's this basically more about the visceral thrill of the popcorn movie of TV again, as opposed to really taking on literary themes and really delving into it, or as opposed to just being very, very broad, and it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, and I think these classifications by their mere existence, I feel like, look down upon some of these shows, and I don't really agree that just because it's popcorn entertainment doesn't mean it's bad. Look at something like Game of Thrones, where people think it's this prestigious AAA show, but it's really just this Dungeons & Dragons campaign on screen. It's as know? soapy as it gets. Like, yeah. honestly, the writing is not the greatest thing that's ever been made. It's just the fact that they hook you in with these characters that you're engaged with and you care about and these huge big plot tones and twists. It's not 
Shakespeare. I'd argue even Mad Men is one of the soapiest shows on TV. So it's just a period piece and very self-reflective and very well put together. Matthew Weiner, we still love you. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, it's all about those character relationships and character interactions, which by definition is a soap opera. Where do you think this notion of event programming fits into this? Because, you know, it often is those things that are more soapy, but have a prestige label like uh, The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones or something like that. But it's not quite something that's prestige for a niche audience that doesn't have the same event thing like Fargo. Fargo, in my mind, the quality of Fargo is because you watch this whole series going on. It's almost an anthology season where you can be satisfied by just watching this whole thing. Or O.J. Simpson is the same thing. Although the funny thing is both O.J. Simpson and even like something like Breaking Bad, I think, became event TV because... After the fact. After the fact, yeah, because of the tension going on every episode. And, And something like Game of Thrones or even Walking Dead, it's all about the twist. It's all mm. about who's going to die, who, what's going to happen, who's going to be killed by Jeffrey Dean Morgan next week. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a very horrible way. Play, More like play. Joffrey Dean Morgan. Whoa, Joffrey. <laughs> Is he going to die uh, from uh, food poisoning? Is that, what you're say? Is that a threat towards Jeffrey Dean Morgan? No, no. Uh, we love you, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I do agree that I think it is definitely tied to this idea of soap opera. And it's basically a season version, an episode version of those fake cliffhangers that need to be done in network procedurals. If you think about it, you know, it's like, oh my God, this guy's the killer come back after the break to learn he's not actually the killer. And it's kind of the same thing where you do kill those characters just so you can come back next week because you want that shock factor that everybody's expendable. And we've reached a point where I think last season you had how many shows killed a major character just for the shock value? So many, so many. And it's all associated with social media. It's all about those Twitter trending things. It's all about what people are posting on Facebook. Any show where you see multiple statuses of your friends complaining that someone spoiled something for them is event TV. Yeah. Hashtag scandal. Uh, <laughs> it is all about the trending, the tweets, and the, even the Snapchats now. People are encouraging this whole like live tweeting thing, this like unprecedented kind of audience interaction to almost force event TV onto people. Right. I feel like that, that's a whole like different subject with yeah. like fandom interaction and so on. Yeah. But I do agree that I don't find there's a correlation necessarily between the quality of a show and the fact that it's event TV. You know, Breaking Bad to me is one of the best shows ever on TV, and it became event TV as soon as the tension reached the almost the boiling point. And that was when people were like, oh, oh my God, is Walter White going to be discovered by Hank? But Uh, you would say that overall, there is a trend towards better critical reception of serialization in shows as opposed to the real episodic nature of them. For example, Transparent is winning all these awards because it's a serialized comedy. Oh, for sure, Uh, for sure. And again, to me, like it ties back to what we said about this almost prejudice against the quality of episodic TV. And that is in part why I think genre TV shows have almost never been critically acclaimed in the Emmys, for example. And it's because most award voters don't respect that version of it. They go by word of mouth and they go by this idea of like, oh my God, Game of Thrones is epic. So it's epic both in scale and in quality also. And if you look at something like Orphan Black, I think it took five years for Tatiana Maslany to get an award for performance and that is because people don't didn't want necessarily to get invested in the show or like why Buffy never got an award probably is because they thought they looked down on Buffy compared to something like the West Wing yeah it feels like they're walking this middle road where they're not getting the huge numbers of the true episodic stuff on broadcast networks on CBS and whatever and really like raking in the money from advertising but they're also not getting all the critical reception awards up there with all the prestige stuff so they're kind of trapped in a limbo 
For sure. I think that's why now we have a slow movement on our TV to go back to those semi-serialized shows where you have those limited series going on, like Brain Dead. Brain Dead was not necessarily a limited series, but nonetheless, or American Gothic. I think the way they marketed American Gothic was as a 13-episode murder mystery. And I mean, translation... Please watch all 13 episodes. I promise you there's an answer to this mystery at the end of the season. We're not tricking you like under <laughs> the dome or whatever it was. Even Fargo was in the limited series category and stuff. It seems like everyone's really hitting that area more and more. It's a mini series. Give me a break. <laughs> mini doesn't sound as prestigious. It's, oh, yeah. it's limited. It's exclusive. Premium mini series. <laughs> All right, I guess that brings us to the end of the episode on that rambling rant. So thank you, everyone, for sitting through that and, and listening to us. Through that episode. Once again, we would love your reviews. We crave them. We need them to survive. So please do those at paperteam.co slash iTunes. That's .co. And any reviews and ratings and stuff that you leave is going to help us find more listeners, which will make us super excited to bring more and more episodes to you. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be famous, just leave us a review and we'll read it out loud in an episode. We will read anything you anything. write. That's, yeah. anything. <laughs> and in fact, if you have any feedback, thoughts, or opinions, we would love to read them or not, if you don't want us to. You can just send them at ask at paperteam.co. That's C-O, not .com. And as always, you can find me on the Twitterverse at TV Calling. And I'm at underscore NJ Watson. What are we looking at next week, Alex? Well, next week, we're going to be inviting another member of my prestigious premium AAA super duper running group. Uh, we, already, we already had Francesca Butler come in to talk about diversity. Well, next week, we are welcoming another guest, Franklin Jinro, who is currently the script coordinator on the Fox series The Exorcist. And he'll talk about his experience as a script coordinator, the ins and outs of that super specific scale set that you need in the writer's room, as well as transitioning into getting that first script when you are at that level. He's also going to exercise me live on the podcast. <laughs> so tune I, in for I that. I can't wait. What a, what a cliffhanger, man. I thought, I thought this was a self-contained episode. Give me a break. I want the awards. <laughs> I want the awards. <laughs> right. See, See you guys next week.